The idea here is that you, you don't forget <laughs> to keep your love turned on. That you don't turn it off. You don't forget that Paul tells us that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And he defines it as us not counting the world's sins against it, but making an appeal to them to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And it says that we're his ambassadors as though Christ were making his case through us. But you have to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Never. If it's flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. If you see somebody and they're doing something that you think is wicked and all that, they, they absolutely can be, but they are absolutely deceived and under the influence of the enemy. And they are a person that desperately needs Jesus. If you want to keep your love turned on, if you want to love people well, if you want to love God, if you want to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and they disagree with you, if you want to love your enemies, you have to actually stop seeing them as your enemies and start seeing them as captives. You only have one enemy and it's the devil. That's it. There aren't any others. We are, as Pastor Jordan mentioned, in a series called The Christmas Playlist. This is week two of the series. We kicked it off, obviously, last Sunday, and it will take us through uh, Christmas Eve. So the concept of this series is to take uh, traditional, familiar Christmas hymns and really take a look at the theological and scriptural significance of these hymns. So a lot of the things that undergird them, the ideas, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, are both scriptures, stories, concepts uh, that sort of inspired these songs to be written because oftentimes we sing these songs and they're familiar to us lyrically, they're familiar to us melodically, but we sing them sort of from this place of, again, just like this rote memorization place without really taking into any deep consideration uh, the lyrics that are being sung and the possibilities of the origins. And, you know, songs, how they were written is incredibly important and the places they were written from is incredibly important. We talked last week about uh, the Magnificat, which is the song Mary sings after she visits her cousin Elizabeth and they're both pregnant and Mary realizes what's going on and she praises the Lord. It's like you read that song uh, this time of the year and you'll understand the context in which Mary inspired by the Holy Spirit sings it and it's incredibly powerful you know you remove it from that context and it's still powerful but not as much and so what we're trying to do is uh, as you know Emily mentioned this morning the more we understand about the songs that we sing the more powerful generally speaking they become uh, maybe some of you remember this others are, t- are too young or never watched it but back when there was a channel called VH1 which I'm pretty sure doesn't exist anymore they used to have a series called Storytellers. So they would take really well-known musicians and artists, and they would, essentially, it was like their own version of MTV's Unplugged, where they would strip everything down to an acoustic set. But the concept and the idea was that the musician would, in between almost every song, explain uh, the origins of the song and then would sing it. And so it just made it that much more powerful. I used to love that stuff as a writer, as a poet, that kind of stuff. I absolutely loved it. And so that's kind of, on some level, what we're trying to do with these songs. But then we're also then diving deep into this is how it was written. This is what it's about. Now, how do we sort of take that and look at that and apply that to 2022? So um, let me spend some time walking you through the background of the hymn we'll actually be focusing on today, which if you haven't figured it out from this morning's worship set, uh, is a little known one called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Now, we chose to do this song in this series uh, before either Jordan or I had any clue that there was going to be a movie coming out 
uh, just a couple weeks ago called I Heard the Bells, and maybe some of you have seen that. We've not. So this was not uh, sort of like, hey, let's, you know, check out the movie and do this. I've not seen the movie. I don't know anything about it. Uh, this is something we decided on, and I'm excited to talk about it. And so I mentioned that because after hearing the message, if you want to check out the movie, maybe it'd give a little bit of extra backstory. Uh, but this was a song that was written by uh, the poet Henry, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. At the time, he was the most popular poet of his era, and by all accounts, uh, he had lived for the most part a very blessed life until July of 1861, when his second wife, Frances, died tragically. She'd been sealing envelopes with hot wax when a flame caught her clothes on fire. Henry had rushed to her aid and tried to smother the flames, but by the time the fire was out, she'd been burned beyond recovery. She died the next day. And Henry, burned badly as well, was too wounded and weak to even attend her funeral, which happened to be on their 18th wedding anniversary, what would have been. Having already lost his first wife, uh, to a, who died during a miscarriage, and this death marked a turning point in Longfellow's life. His physical appearance changed dramatically as he began growing his beard. If you've ever seen pictures of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, if you've ever had poetry units in high school or in college, or if you've just seen pictures, he has a big white beard. He grew that uh, because of the burns that were on his face, the burns that disfigured his face. He grew a beard to cover that. Mentally, he sank into depression, and he actually began uh, occasionally using opium, which was the most available drug at the time, to dull his mental anguish. Winning Francis, the wife that had died tragically uh, with the, by being burned, winning her affection had taken him seven years. He'd courted her for seven years, and she had resisted over and over again, and he was super persistent. And so it was a huge deal when they finally got married, and their 18-year marriage was, by all accounts of people that knew him, the happiest time of her, his life. Uh, in the wake of her death, he was really unable any longer to tap into the creativity that made him the most renowned poet, not only in the U.S., but one of the most renowned poets uh, globally at that time. So he turned his attention from his own stuff to simply translating uh, the works of others. He just couldn't, couldn't bring himself to write anything. Um, so on Christmas Day, about a year and a half later, remember his wife died in July of 1861. So on Christmas Day in 1862, about a year and a half later, he would record in his journal, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. In 1863, uh, Longfellow suffered another blow. He was a staunch, staunch abolitionist, uh, wanted to abolish slavery, and, but he, like the entire country, was deeply troubled by the Civil War. So although he very much uh, disagreed with slavery and very much wanted to see slaves set free, um, he didn't really want to have to see it happen through the ways in which it was happening. Um, so he was deeply troubled by the Civil War. And in March of 1863, his son Charlie uh, had decided that much, much, much against his father's wishes, he would join uh, the fight. So he ran off to Washington, D.C. and enlisted in the Union Army. Only eight months later, Charlie was shot while his battalion was engaged in a battle. The bullet went through him from back to shoulder and it nicked his spine in the process. So Longfellow had to travel from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, all the way down to Washington, D.C. to retrieve his son from the hospital and to bring him back home. They arrived back at their Cambridge home on December 8th, so quite a bit of a, a trip there. 
And a grim Longfellow said about the months-long process of trying to nurse his son back to health in the midst of a still very fresh loss of his wife, in the midst of his own depression, in the midst of his own wounds and the you know, changing of his appearance, in the midst of not being able to bring forth any of his own creativity, he has this added responsibility now uh, to his plate. And the circumstances, as you might imagine, challenged him deeply. They challenged his resolve, his will to go forward, his will to just stay basically alive on some level. But things seemed to, to, to take a turn, excuse me, for him that Christmas. Uh, he was inspired when he quite literally heard the bells on Christmas Day, sounding from a nearby church in Cambridge. He found in those bells a message that peace would once again come to a troubled nation and to himself as well. And they inspired him to write on Christmas Day the poem, Christmas Bells. So the actual poem was written on Christmas Day, December 25th, 1863. Longfellow's poem was originally published in a magazine, and it wasn't until 1872 that it'd be set to music, uh, with a middle stanza often removed to give us the version that we have today, some 150 years later. So just like last week, where I wanted you to just listen to the lyrics to O Come Emmanuel, I want to read uh, the lyrics this morning to I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. So just listen along as I read these. They're not going to be on the screen. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And the bells are ringing peace on earth like a choir they're singing peace on earth. In my heart I hear them peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. Think about the situation that Longfellow had come through, and he's hearing these. In, the, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But the bells are ringing, peace on earth, like a choir singing, peace on earth. Does anybody hear them? Peace on earth, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I love this part. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So think about the situation that Longfellow uh, was in in the midst of a really uh, this nation's first great war and its most severe from a casualty standpoint. Nation divided against nation, and that was weighing heavy, but also within his own family. He'd experienced so much tragedy, upheaval, turmoil. And he was focused on those things, certainly, but also he was very aware of what was going on. And the peace on earth thing specifically stuck out because everywhere around him there was no peace on earth. And, you know, here in the U.S. right now in 2022, while we may not have a civil war like the one Longfellow experienced in the sense of physical battlefields with bombs and guns and artillery shells, uh, we do indeed have an ongoing war. So we may not have a war on our own soil in the sense of physical battlefields, but there is a war that's going on. Instead of physical slavery, this war is being fought over things like heavily codified language, aberrant belief systems, and radical ideologies that threaten to make mental and spiritual slaves of many and have already enslaved countless millions. 
This war is primarily being fought through social media outlets, including and especially, or through media outlets, including and especially social media, and due to the, to the demonic nature of those mediums, and you heard that right and read that right, it has produced a polarization almost imaginable to our society not all that long ago. I don't want to dive too deep into that, whether you agree or disagree with that, I'm happy to talk about it um, later on. But to sum things up, of all that's going on right now, I want to refer to uh, the words, not of Longfellow, but of another poet and prophet named Axel Rose, um, who some 30 years ago wrote these words. He, said, he wrote, look at the hate in a song called Civil War. Look at the hate we're breeding. Look at the fear we're feeding. Look at the lives we're leading, the way we've always done before. Look at the doubt we've wallowed. Look at the leaders we've followed. Look at the lies we've swallowed. And I don't want to hear no more. Prophetic in nature, isn't that 30 years ago? And use your illusion. So with all this going on, okay, with all this going on, all the statements that I just made, we're very aware of the divisions in our country on all sides of things, incredibly polarized. And we're well aware of the constant infighting, the constant across the aisle fighting politically, just among neighbors now, and things have separated us that we couldn't have imagined ever having separated us even maybe five years ago. There's a lot going on, and then we're subject also to what we see every day through the media, which is worldwide tragedy, worldwide suffering, right? And lots of suffering here in our own neighborhoods and in our own city and our own state, and then on beyond that national suffering, we understand what's going on. These, in many ways, maybe necessarily you could make the case they're not any worse times than they have been in you know, any point in history, but we certainly have more access to negative information than we've ever had at any point in human history. And we're bombarded with stories of suffering and of hardship and of poverty and despair and of genocide and of wars and all these types of things. We can, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, it's like an IV drip into our bodies. We're constantly receiving this stuff. And when you take all of that into consideration, all of the hardships we're enduring corporately with what you may be experiencing personally, if you've lost a loved one, you've had a relationship that's been fractured, you're struggling financially, if you have health issues, all of the above for some of you. So you take what's going on corporately worldwide, and then you take what's going on maybe in your own household, in your own life. It can be very difficult to stay encouraged you might find yourself feeling a bit like Longfellow felt when he said, and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Anybody been there at any point? If you have, it's understandable on some level. And make no mistake about it, though, as we talked about in our previous series, the devil, our great enemy, Satan is trying to take you out. He is trying to use every weapon at his disposal, and there are many, to try to take you out of the game. What is the game? Well, the game is living a life devoted and focused on and service to Jesus Christ. And he's trying to take you out of that game. He's trying to make you feel apathetic. He's trying to make you feel like there's no hope. He's trying to get your eyes focused on other things, worried or concerned about things you don't need to be. He's trying to do all this stuff. And over the past three to five years, so many that I've personally seen have slipped into uh, one or all three of what I call, this is a personal thing, but what I call the three Ds. 
Our Longfellow used the word despair, and in despair, I bowed my head. So that's a fourth D, I suppose. But these are the three Ds that I have seen maybe more people slip into in the past three to five years than at any other point throughout my, we'll just call it ministry career, for lack of better terms. So the three Ds are this. The first one is despondency. Despondency is the loss of courage or of hope. So people just sort of like throwing up their hands. They used to want to fight, or, you know, they had hope that things would change and they could make a difference and whatnot, and now it's just like, it's not even worth it anymore. I don't have the energy to keep going on. There's just too many problems in the world. I'm just one person. How much of a difference can I make? So on and so forth. So they've lost courage. They've lost hope. And a lot of the loss of courage or a loss of hope, of course, is going to play into the third one. But the next one is depression. Because when you lose courage, you lose hope. And you think that nothing really matters, nothing's really going to change anything, it's just going to be like it is, and you're never going to be able to overcome the struggles that you're having or the struggles that are going on, then that's not a good place to be, right? You lose motivation. And as soon as you lose motivation, you are going to slip into a depression. Now, I'm not talking about, or depends on how you look at it, but I'm not necessarily talking about those of people that just struggle with depression on a clinical, chemical level, right? There's, that's a very real thing. The things can be going very much right in your life, and you still struggle with depression. I'm not talking about that. I don't want anybody to feel guilty or like you've done something wrong if that's something you struggle with. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the enemy has launched a direct attack on you, and you have become despondent through what's gone on, and you've slipped into a depression, meaning a loss of motivation. You have trouble just wanting to do anything because nothing really matters. And when you start to feel that way, when you grow despondent, when you start to lose courage or you lose hope, and then you become depressed on some level and you've lost your motivation, then a logical next step seems to have been, for many people I've encountered, is they begin to enter into a process of deconstruction. And deconstruction is an old... Uh, it's a term that was coined by an old philosopher named Jacques Derrida, and it's a very unhealthy thing for the most part when it's done in the way that Derrida wanted it done, which was is to take something and to analyze it. Imagine if I took my watch and I began to deconstruct it and take out all the mechanisms and all the parts, and I wanted to see quite literally what makes it tick, but then I just leave it. Right? So I take the watch apart and I just leave it right here on top of the pulpit, and then I never do anything with it. Well, what have I just done? I've destroyed the watch. And that's what's happened with the process of deconstruction that many have gone through in the past three to five years. They've begun to grow despondent and become depressed, and they begin to question the things that the way they are. So they begin to take a look at their faith in Jesus. And as they begin to deconstruct, often what happens is the enemy will bring people around them who will tell them what they want to hear, who will give them permission to do things they should never do, who will support their belief systems even though they're completely ridiculous and utterly baseless, and they have no logic, no foundation in Scripture, but it's because of the culture that's so pervasive right now, just to follow your heart, or if it feels good, you should do it. They end up going through this deconstruction. They take it all apart, and it's just, now it's just a mess. And guess what? There's nobody there to help pick up the pieces and to clean it up. I've seen more people walk away from Jesus in the past three to five years than I have by far the other 20 years that I've been in ministry combined. But easily, 
close personal friends that have gone through this process of deconstruction. It's like the world's this, the world's that, this whole thing isn't working, so on and so forth. Let me really just take a look. Is this real? Is this not real? But then the problem is most of them don't actually go to the people that would tell them to stop being such a moron and actually like think, take things seriously and think about things in a different way. That's strong language, but you know, people trust a, a blog more than they do the scriptures. And so that's been one of the things that's gone on is despondency, depression, and deconstruction. Maybe some of you have friends, family members, coworkers that have gone through this process or they're somewhere in it right now. Maybe you are somewhere in it right now. And if that's true, I'd love to talk with you or Pastor Jordan would love to talk with you as well. So we don't want you to slip into that deconstruction. We want to help you if you're despondent or depressed. So the question is this then. How do you avoid this? In the midst of so much global suffering, in the midst of our own personal suffering, in the midst of an onslaught of media that just constantly gives us bad news, in the midst of all this where so many people in the past three to five years have slipped into despondency and depression and deconstruction, in the midst of a culture where you know, basically we're told like if you don't feel a certain way, then you, know, you shouldn't do that. In the midst of all that kind of stuff, the question is, how do you avoid that? Assuming you want to, and I hope you do, is how do you avoid this? How do you fight the battle well? How do you ensure that you finish the race? How do you ensure that you don't get stuck, right, in that one stanza? In despair, I hung my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song. That's an okay sentiment to have in a moment. Scripturally, from beginning to to end, Genesis to Revelation, you'll see biblical figures have that same sentiment. Times where they were depressed, where they cried out to the Lord, where they were struggling with their own call, with what they saw among their nations, with all the things that were going on among people. And they had that. They had despair. They cried out to God for rescue. But they didn't stay there, right? They didn't stay there. And they also always took those things to God. We don't want to stay in the in despair, I hung my head. There are times in our lives where we feel that way, but the key is to move past that to the part where we say, look, the bells rang more loud and deep. God isn't dead, nor doth he sleep. The right shall, right, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail. How do we make sure that we keep going? How do we make sure we fight the battle well and finish the race? It's important stuff. It's important stuff. We don't want to grow despondent depressed. We don't want to deconstruct our faith. We don't want to fall into those traps. We want to press through. We want to have foundations in truth. We want to fight the battle well. We want to finish the race. I hope you do anyway. And I want to be aware of this enemy schemes, and I want to make sure I avoid his traps. So let's just look over this last few minutes at a couple of things. How do we avoid despair despondency, depression, deconstruction. How do we fight the battle well? How do we ensure that we finish the race? The first thing that we're gonna spend the vast majority of our rest of our time together on, one of the key things to think about when it comes to the world around us, your own personal life, all the struggles that you see, people that don't agree with you, the people you don't agree with, tension, all this kind of stuff. Number one, okay, is this. Keep your love turned on. Keep your love turned on. I'm talking about the biblical definition 
of love, not our society's definition of love, not condoning all behavior and giving permission for people to do whatever they want and claiming it's love. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a Christ-like, servant-focused love where you love people oftentimes tenderly and sometimes intensely. This is, comes from a passage that's probably Jesus' most intense prophecy regarding the end of the world and his second coming. We're in Advent, so it's about looking forward to Jesus' second coming. He spoke of this very thing in Matthew 24, just to spend a couple minutes on that. I have that on the screen. 24, 1 through 14. And it says this, Jesus left the temple. The temple, by the way, at this time was the pride of the nation of Israel. It was their like epicenter. It was the thing that they would have said, like, this is us. Like, whatever it is for Iowa, I don't know, the butter cow or something, I don't know, but like, right, whatever it is that's like, this is what makes Iowa, Iowa. If it's the butter cow, that's sad. Maybe, hopefully, something else. But um, if anybody has any suggestions, let me know. But it, for them, the temple, it was their glory. I mean, it was impressive. And Jesus left the temple and was walking away. And his disciples come up to him, and they call his attention to the buildings. So they're basically like, Jesus, I mean, isn't this amazing? Like, look at, these te- look at this temple. And it was more than just one building. It was a series of buildings. Look at this. I mean, this is incredible. And they're thinking he's going to be like, you're right. It is. It's so incredible. It's just an amazing testament to, you know, my father and all this stuff. And instead, <laughs> instead being Jesus, He gives them quite a bit of a different answer than they expected. And he says this in verse 2. Do you see all these things? Which they obviously did because they're calling his attention to them. Do you see all these things? Take a good look. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This actually happened in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and laid siege to the city and literally destroyed the temple. This was the first part a prophecy that did happen a long time ago, but not the rest of it. He gets into future, the stuff that still hasn't happened. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be a sign of your coming? And at the end of the age, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. It's good advice right there. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. And will betray, these are people that were in the faith, take note of that. These aren't non-Christians persecuting Christians. These are Christians that turn away from the faith that have deconstructed. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Here's where it is. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of how many? The love of most will do what? Grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. 
and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Keep your love turned on. Jesus warns as things increase, as wickedness increases, as we become more aware of tragedy and suffering and hardship and outright wickedness and evil and demonic influence and all the things that are so pervasive right now, and as we see those things more and more being pervasive in our own lives and in the schools or in the communities or in our, again, city or state or however you want to frame it, as we see this and things get worse and worse and we begin to sort of like, um, you know, just like uh, grieve that, right? Or we start to understand like that's going on. And people have always, you know, since I've been growing up and around the church, it's like, oh, the world's getting you know, it's getting, it's just really bad. You know, we're lamenting that fact. Like, it's just getting worse and worse every day. If you believe that, that's, that's totally fine. But a lot of people do that, and then what that does to them is they end up with a spirit of judgment. They end up with a spirit of judgmentalism, and almost, like, sometimes I swear people are almost, like, excited about it. Like, they, and, I, and I mean this in the sense that, like, they're excited about the idea that maybe the world's going to end, but they're also pretty excited about a bunch of people spending an eternity apart from God. And they forget, right, that you're supposed to keep your love turned on. They forget that Jesus said, oh, by the way, most people, and I don't know here specifically, I've thought about this a lot this week, it, you could make the case that he's referring potentially to believers. That the love of most will grow cold because then he says, but, so he says the love of most will grow cold, but the one, and he's obviously talking about believers here, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The idea here is that you, you don't forget <laughs> to keep your love turned on. That you don't turn it off. You don't forget that Paul tells us that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. And he defines it as us not counting the world's sins against it, but making an appeal to them to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And it says that we're his ambassadors as though Christ were making his case through us. So think about that. We have this massive responsibility to proclaim the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. That's kind of a key element of the gospel, that it's good news to those who don't have it. How are we going to possibly present what amounts to amazing, incredible, life-changing, life-altering good news that we celebrate at this time of the year that a Savior was born right into this world? How are we going to do that if we can't keep our love turned on? Because the essence of the gospel is love, for God so loved the world that he gave. So if you're out there and you're blasting people, no matter which side you're on, I don't care, and you're starting to hate people that don't know Jesus, and you're getting all angry and upsetting them in a way that goes beyond, right, you could, that you're able to pray for them, and we're going to talk about that in a second, there's a problem. Can you be frustrated, right, with the works of the devil that are going on and how he's influencing society and culture and the principalities and the powers and the rulers and the authorities that are controlling a lot of these systems? Absolutely we absolutely can. But you have to remember that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Never. If it's flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. If you see somebody and they're doing something that you think is wicked and all that, they, they absolutely can be, but they are absolutely deceived and under the influence of the enemy. And they are a person that desperately needs Jesus. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but we have to keep our love turned on. So many of us Man, we're so quick 
to speak and slow to listen. We're so quick to anger. We're so quick to rage. We're so quick to post something on social media about how bad this other people group is. It's just, it's not a good way to do things. We gotta keep our love turned on. So we have to keep our love turned on in three ways. I wanna go through these quickly because they're pretty self-explanatory. You gotta keep your love for God turned on. Don't grow into despondency. Don't go into depression. Don't go into deconstruction. The way you're gonna continue to love God and know you know, how, what it is to love him is to understand what he's done for you. Understand what he's done for you, to understand his nature, to understand who he is. And we talk about that a lot around here. So I'm not gonna go into that today. How do you love God? You have to have the correct image of God. If you don't love God, you're not gonna love people very well anyway, right? There's The first commandment was... <clears throat> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then Jesus changes that and says, like, you need to love others as I've loved you. So we're supposed to mimic and model Jesus's love for others. Well, why was Jesus able to love others so well and love us so well? Because he understood the nature of his father. He was secure in that. It's important for us too. The last thing, as I mentioned already, is um, a little bit, you must stop seeing people as your enemies. You guys want to skip a slide or two. If you must stop seeing people as your enemies and start seeing them as captives. You have to have a change the lenses you view things through. If you want to keep your love turned on, if you want to love people well, if you want to love God, if you want to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and they disagree with you, if you want to love your enemies quote unquote, you have to actually stop seeing them as your enemies and start seeing them as captives. You only have one enemy and it's the devil. That's it. There aren't any others, okay? There aren't any others. Those people are captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy that has enslaved them and if they don't receive Christ, we'll keep them separated from God for eternity. Gotta see them differently. And that's not saying that's easy, but when you realize, and there's so much I could preach on here, but you realize what, who you are and what God's done for you, it gets a little bit easier. Just remember your own stuff. Here's a pro tip about helping you keep your love turned on and being able to see people maybe differently. Be radical in silencing the voice of the enemy in your life when it comes to Fox News, CNN, Instagram, Facebook, etc., and open the Bible instead. Guys, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm gonna say a couple strong things really quick. Shocker, I'm sure, but is that, look, I don't care where, I don't care if you're like, hey, you know, Fox News is the devil, CNN's the devil, guess what, it's all the devil. It is, if you guys go on there, everybody's angry about something, everybody is putting themselves above somebody else, everybody is saying how somebody else is so bad, and it's name calling, it's ridiculously immature, it's stupid. It's, those things are of the enemy. And I'm not going all like conspiracy theory, like, QAnon stuff, because that's of the enemy too. So if you're like, yeah, that, no, that's the same thing. All those things are trying to drag you off into things that aren't the gospel. All those things are trying to get you away from basing your life, your foundation, the way you move and breathe and the things that you value and how you go about and how you treat people. They're all trying to distract you and take you different directions. They're all moves towards self-righteousness, which is the very thing that Jesus condemned the most. They're all ways that apart from Jesus, we are supposed to feel good about ourselves. 
And that stuff in and of itself is self-focused, demonic type of stuff. Open the Bible instead and read about who you are. Read about how you're supposed to treat people. Read about all that's going on. And I know you're like, well, that seems like an oversimplification. Maybe it is, but why don't you try it and then we'll talk. See what happens if you abstain from that kind of stuff. We have a 21-day fast coming up. All right, we've got a lot going on. Almost done. Number two, so turn your love, keep your love turned on. It's one of the ways to avoid the despondency, the despair, the depression, the deconstruction that's taken so many out. It's one way to not stay stuck in that second stanza of in despair, I hung my head. Number two is keep your eyes on the finish line. You know, most of us don't think about or talk about heaven nearly enough. You know who talked about heaven a lot? Not a trick question. Jesus. 10% of what we have recorded of what Jesus said was about heaven. About his second coming and the next life after. You know who else talked about heaven a lot besides Jesus? The Apostle Paul. Two kind of key figures that talked about heaven a lot. You know, here's another truth. We don't think about heaven enough in the sense of the importance of preparing for it. And we don't talk about heaven enough as a way to encourage one another in the midst of hardship. Romans 8, let's read this together. Paul talks about this specifically. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. He's talking here about what awaits us. If, and this is a key, we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a great statement. I consider that our present sufferings, so any despair that's going on, everything you see around you in your personal life, corporately, whatever's going on, and believe me, we're gonna talk about this in a second, Paul had plenty of it, okay? I consider that our, and he'd lived a long time when he's writing this, so it wasn't like he was naive or unexperienced regarding life. I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's talking about when we receive our, our new bodies, the second coming, the resurrection. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We do not think about heaven enough in the sense of preparing for it. and We don't talk about it enough as a way to encourage another in the midst of hardship. And I know it's not a popular thing to talk about because it's like, well, no, I, I need help now. And I get that. But you're talking to a guy who went through a lot of sufferings. We're talking about a guy who went through a lot of sufferings. So think about this, Paul, if anyone is qualified to make this statement, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It was him. Why is that? Because he probably suffered as much as any person, really almost, 
you could make the case who's ever lived that we know about specifically, and he has a laundry list of things. So he talks about how he was beaten with rods and whipped with lashes, and he was shipwrecked three times, and he was in prison, and, and he was had all the, for many different times, and he was he was stoned, but they thought he was dead, and then he survived, and all these different things, constantly in fear, constantly under oppression constantly under stress, all this different stuff. His whole life, once he came to Christ, even when he comes to Jesus, Jesus tells Ananias, hey, go find Paul. Why do I need to find him? I must, I got to tell him how much he's going to suffer for my name. Not exactly the most exciting calling somebody receives. He's suffered, but in the midst of all Paul's suffering, yet all this, he also talks about how he received a vision from the Lord and he was taken up in the spirit to the third heaven. And he says, I saw things that were too wonderful to even speak of. So he had experienced already a taste of heaven, and he had experienced the worst that life can throw at you. And what does he say in the light of contrasting those two things? He says, this present sufferings is worth nothing. These light and momentary afflictions, some translations say, are worth nothing prepared, or worth nothing when compared with what God has awaiting us. We don't think about that enough We don't think about that enough, that we have a heavenly home that awaits us that far outweighs anything here. And we're going to spend a lot more time there than we do here. So maybe we should spend our time here getting ready for there. Not get caught up in all the stuff the world has going on, but focus on building the kingdom as best we can and laying our lives down for Jesus. When you do that, it's funny how things fall off on the periphery and suddenly certain things don't matter so much anymore. And you're not worried about the latest this or that or this news or that, or you're not concerned with what's going on in these areas because you have bigger, more important things to focus on. The last thing, go ahead and invite you guys to come forward as we close. The last thing, so keep your love turned on, keep your eyes on the finish line, and keep anchored to the truth and force yourself to proclaim it. I, if you, people were to ask me, like, why, do you, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe in, in Christianity? My answer usually is this, not even kidding, because it's true. Because it's true. Point blank, period. It's true. We can have discussion from there, but that's why I believe in it, because it's true. How does that relate to you? How does that relate to this message, the fact that it's true? Because a lot of the times, the reason people get to despondency and depression and deconstruction is because they think that this life and that Jesus more specifically or that God owes them something. And they haven't received it and therefore maybe God isn't who they thought that he was. And maybe therefore if they, he wasn't who they personally thought that he was. Forget 2,000 years of Christian history. Their one specific situation is so unbelievably difficult, so unbelievably bad. They can't imagine it would happen to them and they begin to question God And suddenly, the same person that was on Facebook five minutes before, harping on how facts don't care about your feelings, so on and so forth, then when they have a feeling they don't like about something they wanted from God, all of a sudden it switches. And they can't apply it to themselves, and they forget that we believe in Christianity because it's true. That Jesus doesn't owe us anything because he already gave us everything. That if all we experience in this life is hardship, and I don't want that, and I hope you don't get that, and it's not what I'm saying at all, but if our lives, all of us collectively, individually, look like Paul's lives, Jesus doesn't owe us anything at all. 
nothing. And, and what happens is we start to get entitled. And that's where so much of the despondency and the depression and the deconstruction comes from. Entitlement kills. It absolutely kills. But it especially kills in the midst of struggles. It especially kills us when all of a sudden we bump into something we didn't expect to bump into. And again, despite the vast amount of suffering that's going on at any one given point in time through the world today and the seven and a half, eight billion people that exist that we're very much aware of and all of that stuff, despite all of that, right? We can't believe that something like this would ever happen to us. And now we're despondent. Now we're in depression. And now we're going to start to deconstruct our faith because we've had one struggle. It's like we're so set apart. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad, but guys, I've seen this over and over and over again. It's so utterly ridiculous. Entitlement absolutely kills, and it especially kills amid struggles. Suffering and trouble and persecution in this life, it's not a possibility. It's a promise. It's not a much talked about promise, but it's a promise. If you want to be faithful to Jesus, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. You will endure hardships. If you don't want to follow Jesus, you're still going to do all that stuff. What's the difference? The difference is we have a hope that the world doesn't have. Paul says if Christ isn't raised and there's no possibility of another life for us, we're to be pitied above all men. So he's talking about truth and he's talking about future at the same time. I said that you wanted to stay anchored to truth and force yourself to proclaim it. I love what Chad Wright, who's a former Navy SEAL, crazy Georgian dude now, Christian guy, says, don't give pain a voice. That's one of his mottos. Don't give pain a voice. Don't even let words come out of your mouth. Don't go around grumbling and complaining. Proclaim truth. One of the primary ways that I personally proclaim truth and try to anchor myself to it in the midst of hardship that I'm going through, personal but also corporate worship. A big believer, big believer in this, that when you come into this building on a Sunday morning, no matter how you show up, no matter how you feel, no matter the reasons you stepped in, if you're a believer and you enter these seats and we sing together as a congregation, that you should sing every word to every song. It's just belief that I have. You should sing every word to every song because that's an act of warfare when you're feeling like trash, to force yourself to proclaim truth, to say no matter how I feel in the midst of all my stuff, even if I'm feeling a little entitled, I need to snap myself out of it. How do I do that? By looking at things bigger than myself, by forcing my mouth to speak true words and not giving them license to speak nonsense, to not giving pain a voice. I'll proclaim truth whether or not I feel like it because in the truest sense of it, facts don't care about my feelings. God is good. Jesus is victorious. We have an eternal hope in him, no matter how I feel on a given day. So I'm going to proclaim those things with my brothers and sisters in Christ. David says in Psalm 42, 11, as I close, why my soul are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? So he's in the midst of this despair, depression. He has his own deeds, downcast and disturbed, right? What does he then, he says, put your hope in God. He's talking to his soul. Can you imagine that? It's like getting in front, you know, of the mirror and, and doing the affirmations, you know? Like, he's saying, soul, why are you so downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? You, put your hope in God. He commands it, and that's what we're doing when we sing. 
Because Jesus has been victorious and he will be victorious again. Jesus has come and he will come again. And we pray, Lord, come quickly. But in the meantime, we keep our love turned on. We proclaim truth. We worship together. Why don't you stand as we close with this powerful song. God isn't dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, and the right prevail.